The presidential debates are on topic with IU. I'm Kenny Smith with the Media School at Indiana University Bloomington, and today I am joined by Dr. Gerald Wright, who is professor and former chair of the Department of Political Science at IU Bloomington. Three debates are on the schedule between President Trump and former Vice President Biden. One debate slated between Vice President Pence and the Democratic nominee, Senator Harris. Dr. Wright, thank you for taking some time to discuss these debates with us today. That's my pleasure. Televised debates are a part of the process, but maybe the look and maybe the feel will be a bit different this fall. Maybe. It seems we're still waiting to see the particulars, if there will be any audience in the room in this first debate next week. And it, it, there's an open question of even if the debaters themselves will be in person or if some of that might be conducted virtually in some sort of way, it's going to create something of an interesting dynamic, don't you think? Yes, uh, it definitely will. That's uh, one of many uncertainties around the election, both for the candidates, for the campaigns, they're trying to figure out uh, how to play it, uh, and for voters who are trying to understand it. So, yeah, it will be different, um, but we just don't know exactly how or what the play will be. I've always enjoyed the story about the Kennedy-Nixon debates, how the different audiences on television and radio thought they heard different quote-unquote winners in those debates. It says something fascinating about a changing style of taking in the debate as a political exercise. Might that be the same here if we do see a virtual debate exchange or if we do see two people debating in a room as performers, as political operatives, but with no live audience to feed off of? Well, that's an interesting to speculate and, and about who would play how. Now, it seems to me that Trump really thrives off an audience, and if he had to be without one, uh, when he seems speaking from the Oval Office, for example, it's generally more stilted. He really feeds off the audience when he gets his charisma going. Uh, Biden, I think, is more uh, consistent that way, either with the audience or uh, speaking just to a, a teleprompter. So, yeah, there may be an advantage, actually, to Biden if it's actually done remotely. Fox News Sunday's Chris Wallace is moderating the first debate. He's said to be planning segments on some very topical subjects, among them COVID-19, the economy, the Supreme Court. These are 15-minute segments, at least in the planning, and these are big issues. Obviously, you're just scratching the surface on each of those as a debater, but that's scratching the surface for us as voters, too. What do we hope to get out of that in terms of watching the debates? I think that when these debates come down an awful lot to style points, I don't think voters get a lot of concrete policy information. They usually pretty, have a pretty good idea of where the candidates stand on the issue. Uh, and so some people think it's a person presidential, uh, a person I can relate to, uh, a great deal of its style. Uh, that all said, uh, all the research in political science, at least to date, suggests uh, that even when a candidate is seen as widely losing or watching the debate, it doesn't budge the polls very much. Of course, in this election, it's so close that any budge uh, could be crucial. Uh, but I wouldn't expect much change in the uh, polls and favorability uh, following the debate, at least based on uh, what we've seen in the past. The other segments in this first debate aimed at candidate records, race and violence in cities, and integrity of the election itself. The second debate will be between Pence and Harris. Normally, we ask about the importance of a vice presidential debate, but without trying to sound too morbid here, the age of the presidential candidates themselves suggests there might be, perhaps, a greater interest this time out. Uh, logically, I would agree with you, uh, but it turns out that the vice president counts for almost nothing in people's decision-making. We saw that very clearly in 2008 with McCain. Sarah Palin uh, had widely gotten panned. Uh, voters thought she wasn't presidential material, but it didn't really affect uh, the vote for McCain. They just, I think voters really don't think that the vice president is going to be president, and they don't factor that into uh, their decisions, at least in any way that we can measure. 
and we tried. So as we look back then to the third debate in the sequence, which is actually the second presidential debate, that's set to be a town hall format. Questions coming from area residents, and as of right now, that's still scheduled to be a Miami area debate. So the topics could vary, perhaps a little more unexpected in terms of which direction the topics come from. What does the political science research tell us about this type of format and the change that this type of format creates for the debate? Is it important for us as viewers if so, what do we glean from a town hall kind of debate? I think people appreciate it because it's a more interesting format because of the surprise in the questions. I don't think political science uh, has really established any generalizations about which candidate will better or worse uh, or what might happen. I think it, like in all the debates, uh, we kind of look for the gap or the embarrassment uh, factor, which is entertaining, really, but even those seem not to move the polls very much. People who support a candidate going into the debate, be a wonderful winner, and people who support the other candidates be a wonderful winner there. And that's really consistent uh, across an awful lot of post-debate polling. If everything goes according to plan, we'll have the last debate just under two weeks before Election Day. Now, a great many people by then will have already submitted mail-in ballots or taken part in early voting in their states. The undecideds likely to be by then a even smaller subset of the electorate. What are we getting out of that final last debate, which is in late October? There may be a few undecideds out there by that time. Uh, our research suggests that in recent elections, the number of undecided has been declining. Uh, as the parties have polarized and the candidates are remarkably different, we see a lot more straight ticket voting. Virtually everybody in the electorate knows how they're going to vote right now, even before the first debate. Uh, then there'll be very few undecideds uh, by the third debate. On the other hand, if something really momentous happens and it moves the needle a half a percentage point, given how close it's going to be in some elections, that could really matter. It's very hard to pick up that small of a movement uh, in the polls. There's just enough measurement error in any kind of polling that we do that those tiny little increments are really hard uh, to grasp. And therefore, we probably don't have very strong generalizations about it based on uh, hard research. Let's talk about the voters themselves for just a moment here. I've heard it said more than once that this is an election uh, that is a referendum on the Trump administration. And in a sense, you could say that of any campaign that features an incumbent running for re-election. In one right. so high profile as this, though, how do we explain uh, undecided voters? And in some statewide polling, we see tightening numbers. What are they looking for that they might not have yet found? I think that some of the undecided voters, well, we know that for a fact some undecided voters are really apolitical. That is, they just don't pay much attention to politics. And until you wake them up in a survey and say, who do you uh, support? Uh, they hadn't been even thinking about it. Uh, it's not that they are studying the two candidates and they just can't decide which one it is. They haven't thought about it very much. And uh, many of them will, will not vote, uh, those who are undecided, even at this point. Uh, that's what our research shows us. So what the few that actually will vote, what they're looking for, it could be idiosyncratic. It's a very small number of people, I believe, and they might be looking for statements that are on their favorite issue, who makes them feel the warmest. It, it, it's really hard to tell. It's such a small group. The political communication research suggests it isn't necessarily what is said in the televised debates, but what is played and replayed and analyzed and discussed after the fact that really impacts us as voters. Hence the need for sound bites and zingers, I presume. But given how we are changing the way that we consume media and how that is changing, should those strategies change as well in terms of how a candidate or a campaign wants to deliver those sound bites and zingers to us? Well, I think there'll be 
uh, each looking for what they think is the most favorable clips that they can find out of it. Uh, and we pass through in their ads and in their social media. I've been bombarded by both campaigns and the social media. Uh, it's hard to get through Facebook without uh, several, several amassing for money. Um, I, don't, I don't think what they'll show will be different. They'll just show it in more places now. It's easy to imagine, given the economic shutdowns and school situations, healthcare scenarios, and the millions who've tested positive and several hundred thousand dead, that coronavirus comes up quite a bit in the debates and the subsequent and surrounding campaigns. But it seems as if that has to be handled just so by campaigns and surrogates alike. Is there like a deafness strategy to this that we, we have to speak about this, but it must be done very delicately? I think the two candidates are not being delicate about it at all. Uh, the Biden campaign clearly wants to underline the pandemic, how serious it is, uh, and how, in their view, the Trump administration has absolutely fumbled it uh, and has an awful lot of sickness and death on their hands. And they think that's a sign of presidential incompetence. That's the central message of the Biden campaign. Uh, and he hits very hard with it. Uh, on the other hand, the Trump campaign uh, argues that Trump has gotten an A-plus in the way he's handled it, uh, that it's not much of a problem at all that we're making much ado about nothing, uh, that the only people that get sick are aged people with really serious conditions who are probably going to die anyway. Uh, and so the two campaigns are just taking very, very different perspectives on it. Uh, Trump's hoping it will not be an issue in the campaign. He'd much rather it be uh, the successor of uh, for Ruth Bader Ginsburg or the economy, where Biden really does want to focus and get people thinking about the pandemic and how serious it is. So I, I think if they're both sort of going at it with sledgehammers, they're just a very different story that they're telling. People always have the different issues that matter most and impact them, the kitchen table issues that they discuss at their homes. Are issues related to coronavirus going to be a thing that motivates people to come out this year, or is that just one in a long list at this point? It's one of several, uh, but a lot, <clears throat> an awful lot of people are concerned about it, and they're concerned about the president's uh, handling of it. I've seen some polls where that looks like it's the most frequently mentioned thing. The economy is always there. Healthcare, which is related to handling coronavirus, is also a big issue for a lot of people. And uh, the election issues from 2016, like immigration, seem to be lower on the list these days. It's not, the president's not making as much about it, uh, and neither is anybody else right now. Now, by the time the debates come, uh, the Republicans could start pressing immigration again, uh, trying to deflect attention from uh, the public's attention to uh, the pandemic. The coronavirus safety precautions that we're all operating under, those things are impacting political campaigning as well this year. What do you see that's positive and what is challenging in terms of trying to operate a campaign on a national level when you have these safety considerations uh, at top of mind? For the Trump administration, especially it's a challenge because, or at least I, I was predicting that it would be a challenge because uh, given when even the administration had to admit that uh, there was a serious virus and that it could hurt people, uh, that he would have to have uh, rallies, which is really where he gets his energy, uh, and he cranks up his base a lot with those, uh, they would have to have those social distancing and masks. But he's proven uh, uh, me wrong on that one. Certainly, he's going ahead and having his rallies. They're crowded without masks. They're enthusiastic. Uh, and so far, they seem to be working for him. Uh, that, now, I have to admit, that's much to my surprise. I thought that wouldn't fly. Uh, but his supporters uh, believe in his message about the virus and just about anything else. Uh, and he's successfully keeping their energy up. 
And in the meantime, the Biden campaign, not exactly running a historical front porch campaign, but a lot of virtual events, that's kind of a different experience. It certainly is. Uh, and he's trying to be the candidate of science uh, and compassion. And so he's paying a lot of attention. He has the mask on. We see that a lot more than we do with uh, President Trump. And he keeps social distancing in his interviews and his appearances with um, with Harris and so on. So, yeah, he's, he's playing the strategy, as you would expect, the candidate says the coronavirus is really a serious threat. Uh, he's behaving in accordance with that. And Trump, he's saying this is not a big deal. He's behaving in accordance uh, with his vision. It's just what I think the question is, which vision is going to sell with the public? And that's something we don't know right now. Same sort of question for more local campaigns. How are coronavirus and public health concerns impacting those down-ballot races and their campaigns as we get closer to Election Day? The, I, I do not know the direct answer to that, whether people are thinking about the ten, pandemic when they vote for the state legislature or, or uh, uh, for senators and governors. Uh, but what we can say, and we do know, is that the presidential race is going to redound down the ballot very strongly. Uh, in recent elections, uh, what we find, there's a lot more straight ticket voting, and it's largely determined by the choice of president. So if people like what uh, the uh, president is doing, they're probably going to vote Republican all the way down the ticket. And so if the pandemic is helping or hurting Trump, it's going to help or hurt Republicans down the ticket. And of course, the same for Democrats. So it's really we're in this age of remarkable party polarization. So people, even though they say they're voting for the man or the woman, not the party, they're voting for the party. Uh, and that's not irrational. The parties are incredibly different across a whole range of policy issues uh, in the direction that they would like to take the country. Uh, and so I think people are increasingly, the evidence is very strong that they're voting party. Uh, there's not much split ticket voting uh, going on these days. Elections are about turnout, of course. Any concerns about voters staying away from crowded polling places amid a health crisis? And how are campaigns, be it national campaigns or something more local, how are they trying to approach that with their supporters? Well, the uh, again, it reflects what we have seen. Uh, we've been talking about already the two campaigns approaches. Uh, the Biden people are saying vote by mail, vote early, uh, but make sure you vote. And they're really, but, but stay safe. Uh, and the Trump campaign uh, is saying this vote-by-mail stuff, which he thinks is going to help the Democrats, is a fraud. Uh, and he's trying to throw questions on that and then encouraging uh, Republicans to vote on Election Day, especially to show up and vote. And Republicans in general are more faithful voters uh, than Democrats. And so the Trump probably on strong ground there. The question is whether or not he can get people to really question the integrity of the vote-by-mail uh, process. Now, all the evidence we have says that there's nothing to, to question there that the vote by mail elections are as clean as, as any other. Uh, but the president, has, you know, has made a big issue out of this and he may carry a lot of people with him and make them doubters. Dr. Gerald Wright is a professor and former chair of the Department of Political Science at Indiana University, Bloomington. Dr. Wright, thank you for joining us today. It's been my pleasure. And we thank you for listening as well. For more information, follow us on social media. On Topic with IU is on Facebook and Twitter. And you can subscribe and download this podcast from services like SoundCloud, Apple Podcast, Google Play, Anchor, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Just search On Topic with IU on your favorite podcast provider. And on social media, be sure to search the hashtag InThisTogether to stay up to date on the broader statewide campaign. For On Topic with IU, I'm Kenny Smith. 